0: Welcome to Away from the Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away from the Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and with me I have my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on today, Cecil? I'm doing pretty good, Richie. What's going on with you? I don't know. I'm looking forward to the next Marvel series, which is coming
1: out next week. Next week? What, uh, what's that? That's Jessica Jones, man. Oh, man. I'm looking forward to, that, to seeing that, too, actually. You know, I was a big fan of the Daredevil arc um, that came out on Netflix uh, a couple of months ago. Yeah, I, I, uh, I really dug it,
0: I guess, after the second episode when they had that uh, old boy style fight scene in the, in the hall. was just all one take. That was really raw and gritty, and he, and he saved the kid and the whole thing after that scene. I was sold on the on the whole
1: Marvel on Netflix series. yeah, I really like how they stayed true to the story from you know from the origin and carrying it all the way through so I'm definitely excited to see what they do with this uh Jessica Jones uh, series.
0: yeah, I thought they had good writing, I think they had good actors, you know, but for Jessica Jones. I'm more familiar with that comic run than I am with any of the Daredevils, and it is really dark. (laughs) It it follows Jessica, who is just a basket case, and she is just really not all there. And throughout the arc, you kind of find out why that is and how she kind of pulled herself out of that situation and, and kind of... It, it turns almost into a redemption story. So I'm really looking forward to Jessica Jones because it is a great story, uh, albeit very,
1: very dark. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing Jessica Jones next week. I don't know if I'm going to binge watch it like I did Daredevil, but you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, I'm not a big binge watcher, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll crank through it a little bit. Um, my wife probably wouldn't watch it with me on that one.
1: <laughs> you know, we've got a show to do, so who are we talking to today? So in this episode, we actually had the opportunity to speak to the two co-founders of RethinkDB. RethinkDB is a Y Combinator funded database company dedicated to helping developers build real-time web applications. So our first founder, Slava, was a systems engineer in the financial industry working on scaling custom database systems. Slava is a frequent speaker and blogger. He blogs about his interests in open source, developer tools, Building delightful user experiences and distributed systems on Defmacro. That's d e f m a c r o dot org. That's a great URL. It's fantastic URL. He's currently on leave from his PhD program in computational neuroscience at Stony Brook University. Did you hear that sound? <clears throat> what was that? That was my head exploding. You know, you know, the guy has a startup. He, you know, he, you know, kind of had to put the PhD thing on the side. You know, he's he's a busy dude. He got yeah he things going on. His dreams are smarter than me. (laughs) And our next co-founder, Michael. uh, Michael is very passionate about user experience and building infrastructure software. Prior to RethinkDB, Michael attended Stony Brook University and specialized in human-computer interaction. So
0: let's get down to it. This episode was recorded on October 13th, 2015. And now, our conversation with Michael and Slava. And now away from the keyboard's feature
2: conversation.
1: Why don't you tell us how did you guys even met and became partners?
3: We, uh, so Slava and I met back when I was in, uh, in college. Uh, I was going to Stony Brook University. I actually had, had known Slava before I even met him because he happens to have a very well-known blog, at least in the Lisp community, um, because Slava's background is he like loves Lisp, like functional programming, and he had this great essay called Functional Programming for the Rest of Us which uh, I think you can still find on his blog. And so I remember reading his blog, I was like this guy's guy's pretty smart and uh, I wonder if I'm going to get a chance to actually meet him. Uh, And then I went to um, Stony Brook University, I was doing computer science. Uh, I was specializing in in, usability, human-computer interaction. Um, And I met this PhD student and he said his name was Slava and then he told me I had a blog called Deaf Macro, which is the name of his blog. And it sort of hit me like a lightning bolt. I was like, "Oh, I remember that blog." And I remember reading nice. it in high school, like diligently. I was like, "This guy's, this guy's really, he's, he's, he's very intelligent."
2: Yeah, all the, all of the fifteen people in the, list, <laughs> in the list, community, you know, know about this blog.
3: Yeah, and I was lucky enough to find out that he lived up to the, uh, to the image I had in my head. Um, so we met, and uh, we ended up um, deciding to apply to Y Combinator back in two thousand nine. We managed to get in. On the back of doing RethinkDB, and we started building this company together, and and uh, it's been a long road. It's been about six and a half years now, I think, at this point, since we first met. So almost seven years. Yep. Um, and it's been it's been awesome.
1: So you mentioned your background was in human interaction design, right? Is that what you said?
3: Yeah, human computer interaction. Yeah.
1: So, how did you end up starting a a company around open source database?
3: Yeah, that's that's actually a really good question, um, because <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense when you first think about it. Lava's background, I mean, his is in distributed systems, right? So his he he's um uh he has, he has a background in in working on like you know systems at scale, infrastructure software, but if you look at most like Database products today, or most infrastructure products, there's a huge emphasis on on usability. Like, just because it feels like infrastructure, just because it is infrastructure software, doesn't mean it has to feel like it. And so we spend a lot of time building RethinkDB. You know, from things like the query language. You know, there's like a UI that you get when you use it. We spend a lot of time th- thinking about like how do people use technology? Like, what are the tools that they're using? People are spending 10 to 12 hours a day using these development tools. So it's got to feel like usable. It's got to feel like it's not just um, challenging you to solve a problem, but it's actually helping you to. Solve that problem and so between the two of us between like distributed systems and low-level system software on Slava's side and on my side in 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 thinking about like how people use this kind of technology and how to make it accessible and friendly you know we spend a lot of time thinking about uh how people actually use these things it's interesting because in open source software you often find that you know it's a marketplace of ideas people are creating software to express an idea um, either in sol- either some technology problem they're trying to solve, um, or trying to ship a product of some kind. And the tools that end up getting really mass appeal are the ones that are really usable, that are really friendly. You know, so for example, in in our on our team, we we have an artist who we have full time, and she creates, which is an unusual thing for a software company. But um, the art around rethinkdb, it's in the same vein where we basically as you're reading the documentation, it's friendly. You know, you have like illustrations and characters to help you through it, because art makes things feel friendly and accessible. It's also a vehicle for ideas. And so by making infrastructure software feel friendly, feel human, it makes the, it drops the barrier for, you know, people think, oh, database is hard to use. How do I get started? Um, it makes it really friendly, really accessible, really easy to use. And so if you look up her Twitter, actually, um, her name is Andrea, uh, and she, Annie, and she's on our team, and she just creates art all day around the, around, around the project. And it ends up being like this really great thing because, you know, you have like really hardcore software, but it's made really accessible, really human. You can interact with it, with it in a way that makes it feel really like, you know, it's like it's it's just um, something very friendly that you can get up and running with quickly. So that's kind of how RethinkDB came was between the, the fusion of the low-level technology and really accessible technology.
2: Yeah, also, I also think that like most software today is web software, right? It's written for the web and it could be websites or mobile or even gaming, but it's all... Like it's different from what it was before. It's all on the internet. Most, so therefore, you know, most software consuming databases is on the internet. It's built for developers that build for the web. So if you're building a database technology for the modern world, it's, it's really important to have someone on the team that understands human-computer interaction really well because ultimately your users and your customers, they do that. They end up doing that all day. And how can you build a product for them if you don't understand where they're coming from, what their problems are, what their lives are like?
1: Over the past couple of years, we've noticed that there's been definitely a, a rise in the amount of open source databases that have been, been out there. Like, What are some of the reasons why you guys even decided to to get into building a database? And, and what are some of the the problems that you think it solves differently from some others?
2: So what RethinkDB does is that it ultimately allows people to build event-driven web applications end to end. So if you look at what happened over the past couple of years, like if you look at applications like Slack or Google Docs, you know that there's something fundamentally different about them because it's not just it's not just that you use the app and then you like refresh the page and you get new information. Right, it's people collaborating millions of people collaborating with each other in real time. And the data, instead of the user going to the data and refreshing the page, the data flows to the user, which gives, you, which gives all of us much more fluid experiences of using these applications like Slack, Google Docs, Asana, apps like that. They're really, really awesome. And I think in response to that, to, solve, to help people solve those problems, because building these applications is really hard, there's a whole new development stack that arose in the past few years, and we see it all over the stack. There's something going on in the browser with frameworks like Angular and React which are very much event-driven. Then in the middleware, you see Node.js, which is the same thing, all of it is event-driven, but no one was doing that for databases. So what ended up happening is people build these applications, but the applications, the event-driven architecture kind of stops at the Node.js layer, and then you have to work around the limitations in the database. So what we thought is, hey, we should push this down all the way to the database layer, and the way everything be works is it's fundamentally event-driven. Instead of querying it and getting data, like you would in a normal database, you say, hey, I'm interested in this, like I'm interested in all the events within a five mile radius, or I'm interested in this document, or I'm interested in this set of documents. And then anytime something changes and gets written to the database, we push that to the application developer. So they don't have to query the database over and over again, which makes it dramatically easier to build these kinds of real time applications. So to kind of go back to your question, the reason why we started Rethink is because we thought it's extremely important, you know, it's an extremely important shift and building databases is hard. So we saw a lot of that innovation on the front end and, and, and in the middleware, but we thought that the database is at the core of all modern applications. So it's extremely important to bring that innovation down to the database layer. And once you do that, it makes building apps dramatically easier and it opens up a world of possibilities for dealing with real time data.
1: So we think DB. The product itself is 100 percent open source so so what is it like building a company based on open source software and like what are some of the challenges that you guys faced having to to go through that process
3: so it was a long it was a question for us for a while about you know because we're open source developers ourselves and so fundamentally we wanted the thing to be open source because all the tools we're using were open source and, and we wanted to make it work but there is a question of how you make it into a business And that's the first question we sort of had to think about. Thankfully, in in the database space, for sure, you mentioned that there's been an explosion of open source databases. And I think, by the way, that explosion, a lot of it comes from the fact that people are interacting with data in a different way. Right, so MongoDB and other databases, they rose up when, when um, people started working with unstructured data with like user generated content, data that had different forms, you couldn't necessarily fit it into a schema, uh, you'd have to change your schema frequently. So a lot of, a lot of those changes prompted a huge rise in open source databases. And uh, what's interesting about um, those databases is that they've basically managed to uh, make a pretty good business in terms of licensing, like support support services. So they'll sell like a commercial license and they'll also offer support services for things like you know production uh, services if you want to be able to run it in production and have an SLA so someone can pick up the phone and call if you want to have upper, uh, development support, if you're trying to build your app and trying to figure out how to work with it, and if you just want to train your team. Uh, and so all these value-added services on top of open source, we, we didn't have to innovate in any, any way because a lot of these other vendors in the infrastructure space have already paved the, paved the way for us. So it's pretty easy because what happens is that open source developers just start using the product. And then at some point, um, they want to put it into production and they need help figuring out how do I make sure that it stays up, that it, that, it's, uh, that I can scale it, um, how do I build my app? How do I train my de- new developer, to join my team? And so because we're the ones who, who build the product, we're the ones who are defining the direction of it, we offer services and support around it. And so that path, it, like open source works really well as a business for infrastructure. It's a little bit more difficult if you want to do, like, let's say a desktop app, right? Because at that point, someone may be able to just, you know, clone and build themselves. But in the case of infrastructure, it's great because um, it lives in the server and it's complicated enough that there's a lot of expertise that's needed around it. What I will say, um, in terms of making it open source, it had way more advantages than um, disadvantages. What we found was, and this was, this was probably the biggest thing for us, um, if you go to our GitHub repo, we just all we did was just flip a bit, where we just switched the, the, um, the visibility from private to public. And when we did that, we got a lot of stars. So I think we just crossed the 10,000 star threshold on GitHub recently, in the past few weeks, uh, which makes us actually, we're one of the biggest um, open source projects, definitely in the top 10 for C++. And we're the number one document database on GitHub right now as well. So we have like a huge following. We just kept work, kept working the same way that we work now. So we would just open issues and, and you know, uh, mention each other. And what we found was that basically the community started getting involved in that in, in a massive way. So uh, most companies, when they're trying to figure out, is this feature useful to somebody? Is it something that we should be building? They'll write it on a whiteboard somewhere or put on a sticky note, um, and then not really be able to test and not really be able to find out. And in our case, we just started making issues on GitHub. And then people just started plus wanting them and then started writing, well, you don't want to build it this way because in my infrastructure, we end up using this different set of tools. You haven't thought about this edge case. And so it shortened that product development cycle uh, massively because we didn't have to test ideas. We could just open it to the marketplace of free ideas that exist in open source and then let it play out until we knew exactly what to build. And sometimes people would just build it for us. So we'd get a pull request and then we'd be like, wow, this is exactly what we were talking about. Someone just did all the work for us and now it's part of the core product. And what was amazing is that, you know, people often talk about open source and they mean, you know, one of three things, right? Some people mean, oh, the fact that it's free and I can just download it. That's like uh, growth, like the fact, it's accessibility to the software. And that's certainly great because it means that lots of people just want to try it and play with it. You know, the second is the licensing, which is more of a legal question, and sometimes it affects how you can use it in your environment. But the one that's most important to me, the one that I think is, is really amazing and what honestly helps me wake up every day and, and, and want to keep working on this because it's truly amazing, it's the community component. Because, you know, the, the open, open source, it's a bazaar, it's a marketplace of free ideas. And it's just amazing because lots of people in our community, they contribute ideas nonstop and they get to know them as individuals and they become co-collaborators on the project. And so open source it has a lot of challenges certainly but a lot of them turn out to be logistical and the benefits i mean it just outweighs the disadvantages massively i don't know slob if you have anything else you want to say about that but
2: no i think i think this is pretty much captures how i feel about it i think the fact that well so so someone so my job or at least a part of my job is to set the direction for the product and to make sure that the apis that we expose to people are well designed, easy easy to understand, easy to consume, and just having people comment on, on GitHub saying, hey, I like this, I don't like this, I don't understand this. I don't know where you could get that information anywhere else. Like, this is amazing to be able to get that feedback before you even start building the feature. I mean, it's, it's a game changer. It's huge.
1: So one of the things that actually attracted me to, you know, just your company in general, was the way that you guys interact with the community, you know, not just on GitHub, but just in social media in general, you know, sending out like, you know, little conference packets and really just engaging with the community in a way that I haven't seen a lot of other open source projects, too. Could you talk a little bit about how important that community is for you and some of the strategies you take to make sure that they're engaged and you're getting feedback from them outside of GitHub?
3: I mean, the community behind everything to be. I mean, it's huge. Uh, Cecil, I think, I think you know Christina, and she, uh, she's yeah. our community manager. I mean, we owe a lot to her for, for helping make all of it happen. But when she and I sat down to design how this was going to go, Back when we were first planning on actually you know how do we actually reach out to all our users how do we interact with them how do we how do we build an authentic relationship with with each of the users and do it for a lot of them around the world we have users in 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 countries just to just to mail a t-shirt i mean it costs like 75 dollars just to be able to get a package there right so it's like how do you figure out like how to actually interact with them how do you figure out um, how to keep track of of so many people? What we found was that, first of all, it's absolutely critical. Uh, open source—it's as I mentioned—it's not just a license; it's not just a way to to get the software for free. Open source is about community; it's about people interacting and having authentic experiences and building software together. We think to be a lot of a lot, like if if someone takes the time to download it, to play with it, to tell us their thoughts on GitHub, to actually think about like how I'm going to use this and and challenge us, um, or to even you know submit code like a pull request. I mean, we owe it to them to at least say thank you. Like that's that's the that's the very fundamental that's that's the first that's the least that you can do for somebody and beyond that you can engage them you can talk to them you can say well how about you keep giving us ideas Uh, and so we what we decided to do was first of all like handwritten notes t-shirts um try to keep track of all the people who have helped us uh, make sure that we keep them up to date on what what keeps happening we just opened a community slack group and within like a day and a half, I had like, you know, 150 plus people in there and it's, it's great because we're all now just talking to each other and we're all sharing ideas. But the other thing is that you mentioned like, you know, sending out for conferences, like whenever we found someone who cared enough to be able to talk about RethinkDB to share, you know, the project with, with another team, you know, at a conference at a, at their company, um, we would just reach out and what we do is we, we have this little box that we put together um, and we call it like a meetup in a box. And it comes with t-shirts. It comes with a few gifts, comes with like a guide on how to run your own meetup. And we just mail it to them and we say, we've sent a box your way. It has lots of goodies. Just make sure to share it with people. People do and they, and they love it. They really, they really love just having, you know, something as simple as, you know, stickers on the laptop, but it goes beyond that. You know, we, we have, I mentioned a full-time artist who just creates art around it. So we often like Annie will just draw an illustration of a user, you know, for one of their talks, or she'll take the time to sketch something on Twitter for somebody. And it's amazing because once you start interacting with people in that way, they just want to get really involved. They really want to help build the thing together. And it, it, it adds into this feeling that I mentioned of feeling like we're all co-collaborators on the open source project.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I really admire the way that you guys handle that. And again, for me, it's, it's one of the reasons to why I even really started paying attention to the products, you know, to begin with. Like, for instance, Christina was the only person that actually messaged me back when I was online and I was asking about document databases. And I was like, oh, wow, I, I got a message back from like actual person. You know, and then we, you know, we started like an email relationship, and you know, we've just been talking back and forth, and it just seems like a very positive environment to be a part of.
3: I really appreciate hearing that. That's really great, and I think what's what 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 you say say that it's really important. It's that it's it feels like an authentic relationship that you're building, um, because it is, because we're like working on something together. We're trying to build something, right. uh, and I think that people often think about users as sort of in a transactional way where they they think about someone who's just nope like just one of my users submitted a report but that person like took time out of their day and it's important to acknowledge that fact sure um and i I think that when you do that it just changes the emotional equation and it changes how you can build that company
1: i want to make a shift a little bit let's talk a little bit more about about you guys and some of the things that you guys are involved with you mentioned before michael that you were you, before you started RethinkDB, you were already an open source developer, right? Like, So what are some of the other projects that you were involved in beforehand?
3: Well, I was doing a lot of work. I, I remember when I was in high school, I think Ubuntu had first come out. And I was really excited about it. I got one of those. I don't know if you remember. They had a for a short time. They had like the CDs that they would mail out to you. Yeah, um, I remember. And I, I, I think the first version was like called Warty Warthog. I remember Yeah, I quickly. had that one. And there you go. Exactly. That's CD. Yeah, that's like vintage at this point. Right. Yep. Um, so <laughs> so I was evangelizing to everybody. I was like, this is amazing. And I remember getting, getting involved in a lot of the issue trackers and discussions around it. And I spent a lot of time. I mean, I, I made a lot of projects that were sort of weird and, and, and fun. I'm not sure where they're living right now. But one example was like in, in, in college, I was thinking, how do people interact with like technology? So I made like a, using a webcam. I don't know if you've ever seen the game show. It's a Japanese game show called Human Tetris um and it's it's where they have a person who stands and a platform's coming towards them and it, it's if you if you miss you get shoved into a pool of water. Oh. But what we have to do is we have to fit through the shape that, 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 that's on the platform. So we have like, it's like you're a human Tetra shape. And so I was like sort of working with webcams to figure out how you can like do motion detection and figure out how to frame the body so you would fit through the shape that appeared on the screen. Um, so a lot of sort of just weird experiments. Um, and then thinking a lot about just how people were working with technology at a lower level. So like how people interact with the file system, uh, different different media types. But a lot more of my work was was just playing with technology, trying to learn the open source world, trying to, because GitHub wasn't around when I first started, you know, really developing in the wild and to see it rise up and to start playing with it was just the best thing ever, because you could see these fragmented software communities, these people working on projects, you go to some guy's website and you'd have, like I mentioned, this human Tetris project, some weird project he was playing with. And you would have to go from blog to blog and sort of discover what was happening in the world of open source. They used to have things like for KDE or for Ubuntu that have like these planets like Planet MySQL, where it would do an aggregation of all the blogs and you would be able to find out what are the projects people are working on. But that was like the state of the art and now with GitHub, it's just been amazing because I just find new cool projects every day and i just love playing with i'm playing a lot nowadays with um in my personal time i love playing with um hardware and software projects i was never a hardware person and so i love sort of trying to figure out new interaction mechanisms using hardware using you know light leds uh, motion detection things like that
2: so i was really into tinkering with a lot of different things so back in college and like after college when i was working and then in grad school again i was really into programming languages so i was fascinated with the idea of expressing like expressing intent when you're writing programs, because when you look at modern programming languages, I mean, it was different 10 years ago, but even now I think they're really, really good. Everything's getting easier. The libraries are getting easier, but I always thought that there is a lot left to do in terms of how easy is it to write programs for people? How easy is it to make sure the programs are correct? All that stuff. I was really into a lot of different programming languages. And then that kind of came back to us when we started RethinkDB and we needed to build a query language for people that is very easy for people to understand and easy to express queries. So like, for example, if you look at at Stack Overflow and you look at questions that people ask, when you look at the questions they ask about SQL, it's fundamentally different from any other programming language because like Python questions or Ruby questions is like, hey, this is broken or what's the command for this? For SQL, the questions are, are like, how do I express this? I don't even know where to begin, right? So it's a very confusing language to a lot of new programmers. And we wanted to make the experience of writing queries really, really easy. So a lot of the programming language background that I had kind of really, really helped. And if you squint your eyes a little bit, you'll see bits of like Haskell and Erling and Lisp and Requel, the RethinkDB query language. And then when we started RethinkDB, so Michael mentioned he was never a hardware guy. So when we started Rethink, I was doing a lot of obviously programming and software work here. And I thought, hey, like hardware is really cool. You know, I should learn something about that. So I went out and I bought like a $50 oscilloscope and started playing with it and then bought bought an Arduino and all kinds of tools. And what I really wanted to build, which actually didn't happen, I never finished this, but I would like to someday. There is a guy in the Bay Area. His name is Ben. I forget his last name. But if you look on YouTube, he has this project that he did in his garage. It's called it's basically an electron microscope that he built in his garage and if you know anything about that stuff electron microscopes they're like two hundred thousand dollar devices right it's industrial stuff you can't like a consumer can't buy this it's super expensive and he just scavenged so he's an electrical engineer He scavenged a bunch of parts and he built one for under i think like under a thousand dollars and there's youtube videos about how he did it he documented it he documented. You know, all of the components he showed, there's lots of cool videos of how he's using it. So you could see, um, you know, you could see electron microscope resolution of of various just everyday items that he's playing with. So I thought, man, that is really cool. I want to build something like that. And I learned a ton about electronics. I learned a lot about vacuum, which turns out to be like way harder uh, than you would ever expect. So I learned a lot. I never finished it because it was just taking up all of my time, and I realized it's like kind of becoming super expensive. I think it also took up all of your apartment.
3: Because I remember yeah. walking into your apartment, <laughs> it was just like – there's like compressors and like vacuums and tubes
2: sticking out every which way. And I was like, what is happening here? <laughs> yeah, and I have like a one-bedroom apartment and I have a garage or anything. So, but yeah, I, I never finished that project. Maybe someday I will, but this was a ton of fun. That That's my last like tinkering experiment that I'm really mm-hmm. proud of, I think.
1: I haven't gotten into hardware yet. I think I might want to pick up an Arduino or something like that and, and try and make something. But I have no idea what I'll make, though.
2: It's really cool. But it's, So there's a lot of like starter projects that you can get started with. And then you just you get a lot of ideas. But one thing I learned from it, it's extremely frustrating because I'm used to software and with software, like if you need a library to do something, you just say, you know, sudo up get like and you get the library or NPM install or whatever. When you're dealing with hardware, if you don't have a part, you have to like drive to a store, right? right. And you drive to a store, you get the part, you do some more development and then you realize, oh man, I'm missing another part. And you realize that like, this iteration period is so different from software because it takes days sometimes to get the tools and the parts that you need. It's often expensive, although it is getting cheaper. So that, that part is quite frustrating like, and it's fun. You, know, you have to you realize how different hardware is from software. It's a very different process. There's something very pleasant about just soldering something together and then
3: seeing like, it come to life and sort of feeling that feeling of crafting it with your hands. Like, we're so far removed from the hardware that we interact with every day but there's something really amazing about just seeing it come to life, and it's because you, in fact, did that work. I yeah. think it's
1: something to be said about, hey, I I was able to build this with my own hands. I built this, and I took the time to design it and cut it, and now here it's it's tangible, it's usable, can show off the you know the fruits of my labor.
3: You know, there's there's a whole set of videos on YouTube that so this is uh, when I want to just like relax sometimes, and I don't know what I want to watch. And I just want to watch something sort of be made beautifully. There's a whole bunch of like woodworking and metalworking videos that are on YouTube. And there's something, it's a weird subgenre, but there's a bunch of people who just love watching these videos, myself included, because it's just very soothing to see somebody take a solid piece of wood and then turn it into something beautiful. Just piece by piece, They show each stage as they, as they carve out each piece and stain it and, and there's something very meditative about it. Um, because they're just making something.
2: Yeah, there's there's a whole genre where people take glass bottles and they just make all kinds of things out of them, like things you would not believe. Like they make mugs, they make you know lights, they make all sorts of things. And there's thousands of videos of people just making stuff out of glass bottles and it's so inventive and creative. It's kind of incredible. And soothing to watch. <laughs> and very soothing to watch, yeah. <laughs>
1: I think another reason that a lot of that type of, of craft is inspiring to me is because I'm, I'm definitely not a creative person when it comes to designing, right? And making stuff look pretty. Like I'm very much of a, a developer. So it seems people exercise like that creative muscle. And, you know, even me trying to play with that a little bit is it's like, you know, you're learning a skill that you, you know, that's not. You know, just just not natural to me, I suppose.
3: It feels like you're watching a different part of their brain like light up as they're creating it. Like what are they thinking? Like what frame of mind are they in as they're creating it? It's very pleasant to watch. Yeah.
1: You know what? You know what's always interesting to me. Have you ever if you ever see the speed painters that they are on the beach sometimes or you know, you oh, see yeah, them yeah, involved, yeah, yeah. and you look at them and they're painting this thing and I'm like, I have no idea what he's doing and then they're done and then they turn the picture upside down. I'm like, oh, okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also, it's really hard to be creative and, and break out of like a certain way of thinking if you're just still stuck in the same environment. So like, you know, when Slav and I are trying to brainstorm something, we, we try to do it by taking a walk, by like, you know, talking things through in an environment other than just like sitting in the office and trying to work it out together. It's like, you have to be creative. You have to figure out, you know, how do you just walk out, enjoy your day, like have a cup of coffee and just like talk about things.
1: So, so that brings up a, a question I, I wanted to ask you guys earlier. For for you, obviously having an open source product and also an open source product that that happens to be a startup, like what's the culture of that like versus say hey, I just started another company?
2: Yeah, I think so. I used before I think I used to work um, in New York for a couple of companies in the financial industry, and having a startup feels very very different. And I think the main so it's different in a lot of ways but probably the most important way is when you're building something new you don't have a bunch of layers between the thing that you're building and the market your users um right because in an existing company it already has a lot of products you're building something like you're adding a feature you know if people use that feature or maybe they don't or not a lot of people use it it doesn't it makes the impact on the company but it's you're kind of insulated Um, from that experience, right? Like in a startup, when you're shipping something new, you can't lie to yourself because the market will tell you very quickly whether what you've built is useful. And I think, so at the beginning, very often when people start their first company, they just don't like, I think humans, maybe some people have that, but usually people don't naturally have the intuition for what people want, basically for what will make people's lives easier for what's useful. So when you start building things, you very quickly, like you can't lie to yourself. And you very, very quickly have to build the intuition for what's useful to people. Like, are they going to find, is this actually going to change their lives for the better? Are they willing to pay for this? You know, things like that. So I think that's very different from any company I ever worked at. And that's been a super valuable experience. I don't know if you can get that anywhere else. Me and
1: Richard are both in South Florida. And startup scene down here is really just starting to pick up. But prior outside of that, like my whole idea of startups is, you know, whatever I saw on Silicon Valley and HBO. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so what is it, what is it like being over there in California? Um, Cause I'm obviously I'm assuming it's definitely not what it's like on TV. So
3: it's actually, so it's funny you mentioned Silicon Valley. I, I think that show is awesome. It's hilarious. But I love that show. Uh, so the, the way that I think about Silicon Valley is, um, so they get a lot right. And, but the thing they get wrong is it, it's like all the puzzle pieces are shockingly correct. But the image that they form, when you put them together, it's not at all reality. Does that, like, make sense? I don't know if i explain it in a way that, that, that makes sense. It's like, they'll, they'll like, nail exactly so it's so like i live in palo alto i have an apartment in palo alto and like they have a bunch of scenes that are filmed actually in palo alto um and it feels exactly like you're just in that town like they just they figured out exactly how it feels what the neighbors are like you know what the what the, what the downtown is like what the, what it's like to walk into a coffee shop like you're in university ave in palo alto there's a coffee shop called cupa cafe it's like very well known and you'll just walk in and it's just people pitching their startups left and right. And it's always like that. Like, I, we've done it ourselves at that, at that cafe so many times. And at the same time, it's also, you know, just a, you know, a normal city, like a suburb, right? And uh, it's funny because I think Radiohead actually visited Palo Alto back in, like, they have a song called Palo Alto that they wrote back in, like, the early 90s, I want to say. I'm not sure exactly. And they were like, this is, like, the city of the future. And that was the case 15, 20 years ago, and it's still the case now. Um, San Francisco, I mean, it's just a city that you 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 walk around and every single billboard is just startups like github has massive billboards with like the octocat like you know right there in downtown san francisco you walk get on the train station at atlacian you know etsy they're like advertising in, in, in the train station like right on fourth and king and so it feels very much like it's always present but at the same time it definitely doesn't feel like Silicon Valley. What, was,
1: what were the early days like for you? Like when you're looking for venture capital and you're pitching your ideas and you know you're trying to go through the startup process.
2: Yeah, the early days. So when we moved here, we moved in 2009, late 2009. And at the beginning, it was amazing because we went through Y Combinator, and for people who don't know what it is, it's it's basically they don't like the word accelerator, but it's it's I mean that's the best way I know how to describe it. It's a startup accelerator. So we got in and what happens is you go to dinners every Thursday, you meet with advisors who built companies before. They have speakers who built companies before, and there are people around you who are all building things. So you very quickly get immersed into this culture of builders. And people who understand what it means, you know, what it's like to build a company, what's going to work, what's not going to work. And a lot of the, so you get a lot of advice and a lot of the advice may not be applicable to what you're doing, but you get... It's essentially very, very useful if you're just getting started. Sure. So at the beginning, Mike and I we rented this apartment uh, on on a street called the and there was <laughs> so we'd work through the night, and there was a Seven Eleven about five minutes away, so we'd go over there, and Michael would get a glare. So That's right. He's, he's Every giving,
3: day at three a.m. I think <laughs> I, I, I may have gained a little bit of
2: weight. But I, I thought I thought <laughs> he's going to give me a glare, but he didn't. <laughs> so so that was great, and then so okay, so we started building the company and after white combinator we started fundraising so we were in the middle of the recession like in 2009 the market wasn't anything like what it was now so we started pitching it to venture capitalists and we learned a tremendous amount through that process because there's a lot of people like the people in venture capital many of them have built companies before they've run companies before they've seen hundreds of companies so they understand business really 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 well at a very high level so every time you go in like even if people you know, decide not to fund you, it still feels like you're getting kind of like free consulting from incredible, incredible people that you'd never get access to otherwise.
1: Considering what would happen and all the experiences you guys have had so far, if you're supposed to start today, is there anything that you think you would have done differently?
2: Oh man. <laughs> so many things. I think okay, so mistake number one, we had a serious not invented here syndrome. Like we built everything from scratch. And sometimes so in retrospect, a lot of like in hindsight, a lot of that was a blessing because we get a lot of differentiated technology that no one else has. But I'd be way, way more careful about doing that, about building things yourself versus taking existing things that already work. Sure. I think the second thing I do differently is I would always look at the customer first and always try to figure out what are you giving to people that they're going to think is amazing. Because very often you think something is differentiated or you think something is great, but other people don't, right? But ultimately you can't have a victory over the customer. Like they have to think that what you're building is incredible. What can we give them that they'll just light up their eyes and they'll be like, wow, this is amazing. So I think these are the biggest two lessons that that I learned. I think the other thing is that, um, and this
3: is not really very useful, I guess, um, to most people who are just starting out, but there's like a lot of startup advice out there and not all of it's correct. Uh, Most of it is... Like luck has a lot to do with how companies are built. Um, a lot of people will look at their company and say, well, it wasn't luck here. Are the things that I did go apply them to your startup and they'll work. But oftentimes, you know, it's, it's like luck matters. You can, you can increase your surface area of luck. Like for example, if you want to talk, like just talking to more people about what you're building, right? There's a chance that somebody will be interested, but by just talking to more people, there's more of a chance that they'll have a chance to actually like catch up on this idea that they'll get excited about they'll want to build it with you, but you'll hear the same lessons over and over. Like, we, like we've definitely heard, like talk to your users, make sure what you're building is valuable. But you'll hear that lesson a few times until suddenly it'll click and you'll be like, now I understand exactly what these guys are talking about. Um, because you can't take a person to a place they don't want to go to. Like you may not be ready to, to get at the right stage of your company to get that advice, to respond to it and to build it differently. So I'm not sure we definitely could have done anything different then. But now, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things we'd obviously do differently.
1: When you guys are not working and you're not, you know, thinking about new ideas for the company and for the product, like, what are some of the things you do?
3: Um, music has always been really important to me. Uh, especially doing a startup, it's it's super stressful. You need to have one thing, like one thing outside of work that just keeps you going, that is independent from the work that you're doing. And for me, I so I go to a lot of shows. I, I think I keep a pace of sometimes two to three shows per week, which is a lot. But for me, it's like I go out, I'll see a I'll see a band I really love, um, and it'll be like two hours out of my day, and then I'm I, I feel I feel just completely refreshed. You know, I go to a lot of music festivals. Uh, I collect vinyl records. I have a huge record collection, um, and uh, I have a lot of friends who are who are artists um, who create art. Um, I love art myself. It's a really important thing to me. I I grew up with my, my parents. Uh, they took us to the uh, in New York, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and it was pretty much like almost every weekend from like I want to say like eleven to like seventeen. Like it was it was a long time in my life, and we just spent it like in the art museum, like just looking at art, talking about art, um, and that was actually really important because. Nowadays, that's, that's such an important part of my life is, is, uh, is engaging in art, talking to artists and, and helping create it, um, which, is, which is why I think it's so great to see us do it everything to be as well, because um, art is a vehicle for ideas uh, and it allows you to express your creativity in ways that software sometimes can't.
2: Yeah, for me, so this, this may not be very popular, but I'm like working all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even when I'm not working, I'm working. Like if I'm at home and I'm watching, you know, a TV show, so I, I try to watch a lot of TV when I get, get home and I really like science fiction shows. So I watch a ton of star Trek. Like I just got into Babylon five, which is 10 years, <laughs> it's 10 years too late, but <laughs> I've been trying to get to watch it for a while. Um, yeah, but it's yeah. just getting interesting, but like <laughs> building companies, <laughs> it's always in the back of my mind and I do. And you know, my wife probably hates that. Definitely hates that a lot. Yeah. But I always try. So I try to read um, a lot of different books from different genres. It's always very interesting to me how different people, like look at life and experience life, like what's it what's it like to be somebody else? Um, so I'll try to find books from all kinds of genres, like it could be a biography, or it could be about music, or it could be about movie. it could be about anything. So I generally, I think I just read. Um, I watch probably more TV than I should, but other than that, I, I work like all the time.
1: We'd like to thank Michael and Slava for being guests on the show. Um, It was really good having them both on and hearing their experiences building startups and just hearing about RethinkDB in general. Remember to tell your friends about the show and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com or on Twitter at AFTK Podcast. You can also follow me at Cecil Phillip and Richie at JARS. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. And you can subscribe
0: to the show via the website or on iTunes if you really want to know what makes us tick. Sign up to our newsletter where you'll get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away from the Keyboard.
1: So next on the Way from the Keyboard, we actually have part two of our conversation with David Haney. What? So you heard the first part, the last episode before this. So now we have part two. So hopefully you guys enjoyed. It. There's more? There is more. Yeah, that's going to be cool. See you next time. Bye.
0: want to thank you for listening to away from the keyboard as a reminder we will have new episodes each and every week you can interact with us on twitter at aftk podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com hasta luego
1: So I got a question from Richie. So he said to ask you guys. Uh, so what bands are you are you listening to? You mentioned a little bit a while ago that you're into music.
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, so it's. I'll, I'll let Michael take that one because he's <laughs> he's our vinyl guy. He has this collection of vinyl records that we always make fun of him for a little. There we bit. go. A little bit. A little well, so
3: bit. every every day in the office, I I mean, I'm ordering them. What happens is I just get lost on a rabbit hole of like crazy music um just weird genres that and, and so what happens is i I'll, I'll order records and every day in the office i'll have like a stack of them come in like two to three per day and so i'll leave for like a week to go to a conference and i come back and there's just like a giant stack of like waiting for me they've all they've positioned it perfectly just they, they know the joy that i'm going to get by unwrapping them um but in terms of music uh so actually i'm going this weekend uh, in san francisco there's a great music festival it's right off um uh, right next to san francisco there's a little island called treasure island um, and I think it's like a neat naval base was there, um, and it's actually a really beautiful area because you get this amazing. If you ever visit San Francisco, you can just drive over the bridge to Treasure Island, and you'll see this beautiful view of the skyline of San Francisco, uh, and it's just it's just magnificent because uh, you never really get that kind of shot because the city is so hilly. Um, but there's a festival happening this weekend called Treasure Island Festival, um, and the most excited that I'm going to see uh, on on, uh, t- on Saturday. Uh, is Bob Moses, which is this awesome like house and I would say house and R&B, uh, amazing 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 group of guys. Uh, and then a couple of the people, I mean like uh, Jose Gonzalez, uh, Gorgon City, uh, Dead Mouse, uh, The National. Um, I, I kind of like music from from every genre as long as it has something interesting texture. I'm really into it. So you know there's a bunch of weird bands like um, or groups like Bing and Ruth, um, Arms and Sleepers. Uh, about sort of weird weird interesting sounds I'm I'm really 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 enjoy but I don't know if that if that gives you a sense
1: music for me has always held like a very special place so so generally in the Caribbean we get a lot of hip hop and R&B but we also get a lot of african yeah. music um we get a lot of spanish music too and I mean
3: Caribbean culture is such a blend right so i mean it pulls from all those influences musically as well
1: right yeah definitely and and for me growing up it was like I used to walk everywhere, right? Like, generally, generally, like, you know, even as a teenager, like, I never had a car or anything like that. I used to walk everywhere. And so, me walking to wherever I was going, it's me and my CD player. And so, you can imagine for that whole entire walk, I'm just listening to a CD or a song whatever it is and now when I now when I'm a little bit older and I listen to some of that music like I remember exactly yeah. hey I was you know this is this always came on when I was at the beach or this is when I was leaving school or you know this is when I was going to go play basketball and it it has such a nostalgic effect on me
3: music is funny that way i mean a good book is like that too where where you read it when you're young you listen to 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 the right song and it's the soundtrack to your life right like you're you're experiencing interactions with people like memories are being created um, and something about the way your brain just like encodes it—it's um, it, like music will, it'll catch. It's like a net. It picks up whatever memories you have as you're as you're just going through life. And then when you listen to it, you just get to enjoy all those memories again. Yeah. Um, it's funny because music itself—it's like if you think about how it's recorded and how it's played back—it's um, really like I think someone said it really beautifully, and I think this is like really correct. That music is like it's like a sculpture through time, right? So it's like you have these vibrations, like your vocal cords are vibrating, and you have these molecules that are being pushed out. Um, as someone sings there's the instruments being played and it has like a pattern and that pattern gets captured you know in the case of a record or, or tape it's like it's physical like you have an impression of it and then whenever it's played back it's like those all those molecules all, all those vibes all those vibrations rather um are coming out they're coming back out of the speakers of the headphones and they're just filling that space and and it's really i always whenever i listen to like the right song the right music i like to think about you know where it was recorded, like how someone what someone was thinking and the frame of mind they were in, and then all the memories I've had that are associated with it. Like you mentioned, like walking down and just listening to this song. Like it, it changes the ordinary to to the extraordinary. It brings it it brings it to that really special place.
1: And so when I was uh, when I was younger too, I used to play my mom made me learn how to play the piano. Um I say made <laughs> me learn me too I, actually yeah. I went I went <laughs> kicking and screaming. I didn't want to do it but, uh, <laughs> but Again, like I was, I was pretty young when I started. I must have been like eight years old. But as I got older and, you know, when I hit 13 and I was still playing and I noticed when I listened to music on the radio, I started to hear more instruments. And it's the same songs, right? It's the same songs that I've heard yeah. before. But for some reason, I guess for me, learning to read and listen to music a little bit better, I I started to hear the music on the radio so much differently. You know, and like the yeah. words just stood out more. And like the, the little tiny instruments that nobody ever really pays attention to. I'm like, oh, okay, I can hear that little snare that's in the back.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. So I actually also played piano for 10 years. I played a bunch of other instruments too because my family was like a instrument playing family, lots of music. Uh, so I actually, I did like marching band with like the baritone saxophone, which is not a small instrument. So <laughs> I was like this tiny kid, like lugging this giant saxophone across the marching band. Like, like you're running around while you're playing. Right. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time, I did like tenor sax, piano, baritone. Sax. Um, and what's interesting about music, it's, it's funny because a lot of programmers are actually mu- musicians. Like music and pro- programming seems to go, or software seems to go hand in hand. And I think it's because y- you, you, you read sheet music, you, you have an interaction where you're basically thinking about abstractions. Uh, you have these ideas like a quarter note or a half note or a measure. And they're all abstractions of, of really, you know, basic, basic uh, operations. Like you're pressing the key or you're doing, but at some point you start to see how these ideas like, all relate to each other. How you can actually tell a story. Um, through the way that that you know use a certain instrument, or you'll you'll use an instrument for one culture, and suddenly you'll you'll spin that entire culture into that song, um, and that's what I meant when I when I when I said finding weird esoteric music in particular. I love finding music that just like pulls in like this, you're just uh, completely unexpected relationships. Like you are listening to like house music, and then suddenly there's like a salsa beat, or like yeah. there's like some instrument from the Caribbean. You're like, where is that coming from? Like, why did they choose to do that? And what's interesting about it is is that. Um, at, what, what you start to notice is if you get like really good a really good setup. What you want is you want like soundstage where you close your eyes and you have really good imaging. And what I mean by that, I don't know if, if you if you listen to music like this a lot, but these kind of ideally what you have is you can close your eyes. You should be able to pick out exactly where each instrument is coming from, as if the orchestra is sitting in front of you. Mm-hmm. And when you get that, you start to say like it's not just that you hear the snare drum right here, but that it's moving and there's a certain like energy to it. There's a certain purpose. When you have someone who really knows what they're doing and produces it really well, you sort of get these really magical, um, re- like, like you get to reapproach the same song with completely fresh eyes. And that's just, the- that's just one of the best experiences in the world.